I'd like to introduce you to tonight's speaker, Mr. Timothy Noah. Timothy Noah is a senior editor at the New Republic. Previously, he was a senior writer at Slate, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, an editor at US News and World Report, a correspondent for Newsweek, and an editor of the Washington Monthly. His new book is The Great Divergence. Please give a warm welcome to Timothy Noah. Thank you for coming. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here because I uh, grew up in Los Angeles. In fact, when I uh, left Los Angeles to go away to college in 1976, the uh, trend in incomes in the United States was still egalitarian, so maybe I never should have left. <laughs> the great divergence is uh, a term that I use in the book. I, I uh, borrow it from uh, Paul Krugman, the Nobel Prize winning economist and New York Times columnist. The Great Divergence refers to uh, an income inequality trend that began in 1979 and continues today. Incomes have been uh, growing more unequal since 1979, steadily more unequal. Um, some people, when, when that's pointed out, they'll say, well, isn't that the nature of capitalism? Uh, the answer is, it was not the nature of American capitalism from about 1934 through 1979, a period that, granted, included the Great Depression and World War II, but also included uh, the post-war years uh, during which we experienced a level of economic growth that we would kill for today. Um, during that period, uh, uh, economic growth was, uh, uh, prosperity was, was widely shared, uh, in fact, incomes were growing a little faster for much of that time in the middle than they were at the top. Um, as I say, that stopped around 1979 and uh, has continued to this day. There are really two divergences. When we talk about the Great Divergence, I'm really talking about two mostly separate but not entirely separate things. One is uh, a skill-based divide uh, between people who have college degrees and increasingly over time people who have graduate degrees on the one hand and uh, people uh, who don't on the other. Um, and the uh, other part of the great divergence is the famous 1% versus the 99%, um, which is largely a function of a run-up in pay for uh, people in the finance industry and run up and pay for top executives in non-financial corporations. The, uh, let's talk about the skill-based divide for a second. Um, it's, you know, in the early 1990s, we heard a lot of talk about how computers had absolutely transformed the universe and uh, suddenly required uh, education um, where, where none had been required before. That was uh, an oversimplification. What really happened, uh, and, and this is described by the economists Lawrence Katz and Claudia Golden um, at Harvard in their book, uh, The Race Between Technology and Education. What really happened, as they describe it, is as follows. Uh, throughout the 20th century, technological change placed ever greater demands on workers. Uh, uh, the, the, the demand for skilled labor grew and grew and grew, starting at the very beginning of the 20th century. At the beginning of the 20th century, uh, nobody went to high school. Practically nobody went to high school. About 90% of the population uh, uh, had no high school education. And we had something called the high school movement, where uh, uh, people consciously built high schools around the country and um, made sure the states paid for them and uh, passed laws requiring attendance in high school to be mandatory for uh, uh, at least a few years. And as a result, high school attendance and high, the high school graduation rate rose and rose and rose, uh, starting from uh, a, a very low uh, rate uh, in 1900. Uh, it rose and rose and rose through the 20th century. Now, during that period, we had one technological development after another, most of them much more impressive than the advent of computers. Uh, starting in the beginning of the 1900s, uh, uh, we, we had the advent of electricity. 
and the advent of air travel, the advent of motion pictures, uh, advent of the automobile, um, all kind of crashing uh, down at the same time. But uh, and all of these uh, technologies required greater skill levels, but uh, the American labor force provided greater and greater uh, 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 skill levels for uh, uh, manufacturers. Um, the the uh, high school graduation rate rose along with the demand for high school graduates and uh, uh, later college graduates. Uh, that started to break down in the 1970s. The high school graduation rate in the United States uh, dipped a little bit and then leveled off. Meanwhile, demand for uh, skilled labor uh, didn't stop growing. It, with the advent of computers, it continued to grow. So what you really have is a supply-demand problem uh, with regard to skilled labor. Uh, now, another part of the skill-based divide that um, doesn't get discussed as much uh, by conservatives, uh, who are very interested in this part of the, the Great Divergence, uh, because it, it allows you to criticize schools. Uh, but the other part is, uh, is the decline of the labor movement, uh, really the collapse of the labor movement. You know, when people talk today about big labor, it always feels to me like kind of a cruel joke. Um, labor is not big anymore. Certainly in the private sector, it's not big. Uh, union density uh, at, at the labor movement's peak in the early 1950s was uh, close to 40 percent. Uh, now it's down to 7 percent, which is what it was when Franklin Roosevelt was elected president. Um, one sentence I write when I talk about this in, in my book, and it's a sentence I was tempted to write uh, several more times in the book was, it's as if the New Deal never happened. Um, so you've got this, uh, this supply-demand problem with regard to skilled labor. You have the collapse of unions, and you know, it was once true that belonging to, un to a union was the rough equivalent of having a high school education uh, when it came to wages. Uh, and that's, that's, that's part of the divide. The other part of the divide is, is the 1% versus the 99%. And uh, the, the income share of the 1% since 1979 has taken off like a rocket. Uh, the, the, the top 1% has doubled its share of the nation's collective income since 1979. Now, during the, uh, this last recession, the one percent's uh, income share dipped a little bit, and uh, and some writers, uh, I won't name names, but um, uh, uh, Megan McArdle at the Atlantic was one, <laughs> said, "Why are we talking about income inequality? This problem is in the process of of solving itself." And um, the the error she made was that uh, recessions are always bad for rich people. Um, because they, they get a disproportionate amount of their money uh, in, from uh, capital gains. Uh, and yes, the recession was harder on the 1% than it was on everybody else. But, and this is a big uh, caveat, in 2010, uh, when the recovery began, the 1% uh, the started rapidly regaining income share, and what's really remarkable, this is a, a statistic by, uh, uh, from Emmanuel Saez, uh, who, along with Thomas Piketty, did the pioneering work on the 1% versus the 99%. Uh, Saez observed this past March that as of 2010, 93% of the recovery had ended up in the pockets of the 1%. Um, this was, again, as of 2010, uh, a members-only recovery. Um, so uh, that's, a, you know, a description of what the Great Divergence is. Um, in my book, I, I talk a bit about uh, some of the factors that uh, are suspected to contribute to it, and some do and some don't. Um, the, uh, an example would be gender and race. When we think about 
uh, income inequality or equality generally, uh, race and income tend to, uh, uh, race and gender tend to come into our minds uh, quickest. But uh, the story of the increase in income inequality since 1979 is not really a story about, about race and gender in any direct way. Um, the, uh, the income gap between African Americans and whites is about the same today as it was in 1979. Full stop. That is a horrible fact in and of itself. Uh, if I had told you back in 1979 that a third of the century later, the income gap between blacks and whites would be unchanged, you would have called me a liar. Um, however, the fact that the income gap <coughs> excuse me, is unchanged between whites and blacks means it can't really be contributing to the growth in income inequality since 79. Um, now, some people have pointed out to me since the book came out that, that there are indirect ways in which race has contributed to uh, the Great Divergence, and, 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 and I concede that point. The, the most significant is that the change in our politics where the government is less interested in supporting the welfare state has a great, to deal, has a great deal to do with the realignment of politics uh, uh, as a result of the uh, civil rights, passage of the civil rights laws in the 1960s, the uh, departure of the South from the Democratic Party and um, a growing hostility towards government generally. That had a lot to do with race. But in no direct way did race contribute to the growth in income inequality since 79. With regard to gender, the gap between men and women has actually been narrowing since 1979. There's still a gap, but it's, it's narrower than it was. And therefore, um, you can't really say that gender has much to do with income inequality. Uh, single parenthood is often cited as a uh, driving factor in income inequality, but that doesn't appear to be a major contributor. And the reason is that a lot of things are happening with single mothers that are contradict one another. Uh, the fact that women have been entering, uh, that single mothers have been entering the workforce uh, uh, to a much greater degree than, than was previously true, tends to counterbalance the, um, uh, the fact that uh, uh, single mothers are more likely to be poor. So obviously there is a subgroup that uh, has done uh, uh, very poorly uh, uh, as a result of single parenthood. But when you look at um, uh, uh, female single mothers in the aggregate, uh, that doesn't seem to have been a contributor. Uh, immigration uh, is a very likely suspect, likely seeming suspect, because the timing is perfect. In 1965, we liberalized the immigration laws. And uh, you know, by the 1970s, we had a lot of immigrants coming into the United States, uh, from, uh, disproportionately from uh, low-wage countries. And uh, these immigrants were disproportionately um, uh, at the lower end of the economic spectrum. But uh, economists have not found a lot of, uh, haven't really been able to find any uh, proof that this has had much impact. And uh, the reason is that the, uh, the immigrants, the, the great majority of these immigrants are um, so unskilled that they're only really uh, uh, having an impact in economic competition with native-born Americans, they're only really having an impact among high school dropouts in the United States. There is some uh, lowering of uh, incomes for high school dropouts in the United States, but not a terrific uh, uh, decline in uh, income uh, for everybody else that can be attributed to immigration. Um, the, and when we talk about the Great Divergence, we're really talking about a phenomenon where there is a growing gap between the middle class and the rich. The Great Divergence doesn't have a lot to do with poverty per se because it was lousy to be poor in 1979 and it's lousy to be poor today. Um, the gap between the poor and the middle class um, hasn't really grown appreciably since 
1979. Um, so uh, when you're looking at the middle class versus the rich, it's hard to uh, see much impact coming from immigration. Um, and as a side note, there seems to be some growing evidence that uh, uh, illegal immigration, particularly from Mexico, uh, is uh, on the wane. Um, uh, for a number of years, uh, uh, there's been a measurable decrease in immigration from Mexico. A number of scholars attribute to uh, demographic changes in Mexico, um, uh, uh, smaller families, uh, more education, uh, and an improving economy. So we may not be talking about the illegal immigration problem at all in five or six years, just uh, because of demographics. Uh, trade is a logical uh, thing to blame income inequality on, and it's certainly true that we're in a more challenging international environment than we were in the post-war years. Uh, but uh, it's a, if, you're, if you're looking at the Great Divergence as a historic trend going all the way back to 1979, it hasn't had, a, it didn't really start having an impact until the 21st century. And that's because it's only very recently that the United States has been trading extensively with uh, countries that have dramatically lower wages than the United States. Uh, and and the, the big player here, of course, is, is China. Um, which manages to be a poor country and a rich country at the same time. Uh, rich in the sense that its economy is, is growing by leaps and bounds, poor in the sense that wages are very, very low, and although they're, they're coming up when um, you've got uh, a billion people, uh, it takes a lot longer than it does in other countries. Um, offshoring has been uh, a factor here. Uh, that's distinct from trade. Uh, offshoring is, is, is when uh, uh, you know, factories are moved abroad, jobs are moved abroad, and so on. Um, but interestingly, looking forward, the projections suggest that it, it, it probably won't be a contributor in the future. Uh, and it's kind of a good news, bad news uh, story. Uh, the good news is that offshoring won't uh, worsen income inequality. The bad news is that's because uh, foreign countries are next coming after highly skilled jobs. Um, and uh, so uh, Alan Blinder, a, an economist at Princeton, former member of the Fed board, uh, projects that in the future we actually will see slightly more skilled jobs than uh, uh, less or moderately skilled jobs being offshored. Um, jobs like, you know, radiologist, uh, even college professor, he, he speculates. Um, and it's certainly true of journalists, I'm sorry to say. Uh, the uh, the, the um, uh, Reuters is already offshoring some of its business journalists to India, where uh, some of their sources also uh, turn out to live because uh, a number of Wall Street analysts are also being offshored to India. And um, I, I did a dialogue talking about the book with Matt Iglesias of Slate. And, uh, and I said, you know, we're both in, in big trouble, but I think uh, you're probably in bigger trouble than I am because I write a, a column called TRB from Washington. <laughs> and I said, if my editor ever suggests we shorten that to TRB, I know that'll be time to start looking at the WAN ads. Um, so uh, trade has... Since the start of the 21st century, been a factor, but it was a, a late arrival on the scene. We were talking about it as a factor before it was actually, before it really was a factor. Now it is a factor. Um, the, uh, so those are the, the uh, uh, principal factors that I, I, I talk about in the book. Um, and uh, some people, a lot of people, as I uh, go around, talking about the book, say, well, why should we care about income inequality? And I always answer that question, uh, I always begin with a preamble to my answer. 
uh, in the preamble is this is not a question that anybody would have asked 100 years ago, and it's not a question that anybody would have asked 50 years ago. Nobody would have asked it 100 years ago because the United States was closer to armed insurrection against the state than it's ever been before or since. We had anarchists, we had socialists, we had uh, people bombing the home of uh, Attorney General Palmer, who uh, uh, came down very hard with the Palmer raids. We had uh, a real class warfare. You know, when Republicans talked about, today Republicans characterize any discussion of social class as class warfare. And I, I did a blog item a few months ago where I showed uh, a scene from Mate Wan and the draft riot scene from the gangs of New York. I said, just so you know, this is class warfare. Um, uh, so the elites were scared. Elites felt that they really had to keep income inequality in check or else uh, the socialists might take over, the anarchists might take over. Fifty years ago, nobody discussed, nobody had to ask this question because the U.S. was competing with the Soviet Union for hearts and minds in third world countries, and we needed to uh, be able to present a good argument, and we weren't going to present a good argument if income inequality got out of hand. So again, elites were very concerned about income inequality 50 years ago. Well, today, nobody has to worry about violent overthrow of the U.S. government, and there is no Soviet Union. Uh, so now, elites are a lot less concerned about income inequality than they were. Um, and it is once again possible, uh, really for the first time in, 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 in more than a century, it is actually possible to wonder why should we care about income inequality. So here's my answer. I have two two answers. One is uh, sociological and the other is economic. The sociological answer is that uh, democracy really requires a thriving middle class. A famous Harvard sociologist named Barrington Moore once wrote in, in surveying societies all over the world throughout history, he said, no bourgeois, no democracy. And um, as we see the middle class uh, wither away, um, the glue that holds the country together dissolves. Uh, we become more like a banana republic, and we know how stable those are. Um, the, uh, our politics have already gotten, I think, much more tribal than they used to. Um, there's a lot of research that's shown that uh, there's greater alienation, uh, mutual alienation, mutual distrust, mutual incomprehension between the working class and the affluent than was true in earlier times. Partly that's because residential patterns have shifted. We've sorted ourselves according to um, economic status much more than before, and also according to a variety of other uh, sociological um, uh, uh, markers, uh, including uh, political beliefs. Uh, and you know, this is actually documented by Charles Murray in his recent book, Coming Apart. It, he does a pretty good job, actually, of describing this, this growing gap between the middle class and the affluent. Where he, he falls down on the job is by pretending that none of this has anything to do with the growth in income inequality. Um, it's, it's a weird book. He, he, he describes what we all see happening, and then he says, ah, it's all the 60s. Um, so, uh, uh, but it is a real trend, um, and it is attributable to income inequality. Um, even most conservatives, I think, would, would concede that point. And it's harmful. It's harmful to democracy. There's more, uh, you know, resentment of elites is always a force in our politics, but I think it's more of a force today than it has been in the past. It, it defines our politics to a much greater degree than was previously true, and I think that's a function of income inequality. And I think you see that in the Tea Party, and you see that in the Occupy movement. Uh, so that's the sociological reason why we should care. The economic reason we should care is that we have th that the uh, the middle class no longer has a terrific stake in the nation's prosperity. Uh, the middle class has has not seen uh, its incomes rise since 1979 to anything like the degree that it saw its incomes rise in the post-war post-World War II years or to anything like the degree to which incomes have risen for the affluent. Uh, 
over the last dozen or so years, median income has actually declined slightly, uh, while at the same time we have seen some fairly spectacular increases in productivity. I think that's especially dangerous because uh, uh, until fairly recently, whenever productivity went up, middle-class incomes went up. Um, that was logical. That's pretty much been the deal since World War II. Uh, it's not the deal anymore. And uh, you know, conservatives like to talk about how uh, the rich need to be incentivized, um, but it seems to me that uh, people uh, working at the median need to be incentivized too. And if I'm a, a middle-class worker uh, earning at the median, and uh, I am not going to see any more money if I improve my productivity, then why do I have to care about how good a job I do? Why do I have to care about whether my company prospers? Why do I even have to care whether the country prospers? The only reason to care is fear of losing your job. There's no um, positive reason to be terribly interested in the country's prosperity. And I have to believe that that is part of what ails our economy today and will likely ail our economy until we address this problem. Uh, with that, um, I'm ready to open it to, uh, to questions. The change in taxation rates, a major factor in producing income inequality, that is the tax rates on the wealthy was at one time was much higher, the effective tax rate was much higher. Income tax rates have changed uh, very, very dramatically. It's probably the, the most dramatic change in domestic policy since 1979. When Ronald Reagan came into office, the top marginal rate was 70 percent, uh, and uh, as recently as 1964, the top rate had been 90 percent, which is where it stood throughout the 1950s. Reagan uh, uh, lowered it, and uh, George W. Bush lowered it, and now the top marginal rate is, is 35%. It's half what it was when Reagan was elected. Uh, however, strangely enough, um, that is not really what's driving income inequality. Uh, the income tax is actually slightly more progressive today than it was in 1979. Now, how can that be if they've been whacking away at the uh, top marginal rates? Uh, because Reagan and then Clinton also simultaneously took a lot of people at the lower end of incomes off the tax rolls altogether, and they created the earned income tax credit, uh, very popular among conservatives, invented by Russell Long, a conservative Democrat, uh, in the 70s uh, as an alternative to welfare payments. We wanted to reward the deserving poor, the working poor, by um, giving them the earned income tax credit. And uh, it's, it's an interesting... So as a result, income tax is actually slightly more progressive. I should note that now conservative orthodoxy has turned against the earned income tax credit. Now the cutting-edge thinking among conservatives is that we need to get all those people back on the tax rolls so we can lower taxes on the rich, which is grotesque. Um, but uh, there, there really are no more deserving poor. They, they just don't exist anymore, apparently. So, uh, so ta income tax uh, hasn't really uh, contributed as much as you would think. And overall, if you look at the whole basket of, of um, uh, income, all kinds of taxes and benefits, then yes, you do see some reduction in progressivity. Uh, uh, the, the government is about 25% less redistributive today uh, with Americans' money than it was in 1979. And uh, really, that's largely because of uh, benefit programs. Um, even so, it's not really what's driving income inequality because if you look at the numbers, if you look at the pre-tax numbers, that's where the big dramatic changes are. The government is doing less to fix income inequality, but there's a whole lot more of it than there used to be. It seems that the discussion about income inequality has focused more on helping the job creators and what I consider the myth of the rich being the job creators. But what seems to be lost is the idea of diminishing returns. 
that another million dollars to Bill Gates won't do as much as another hundred dollars to a school teacher. And why is that ignored in the debate going on right now? When you're talking about economic stimulus, I think there's, there's pretty broad consensus that that's true. You're better off putting money in the school teachers' hands because they'll spend it. Uh, Bill Gates will just put it in the bank. Um, the, uh, you know, the interesting thing about sort of job creators, when Steve Jobs uh, died, and look, I love Steve Jobs. I, I love Apple. I have a Mac. You know, I have an <laughs> iPhone. But uh, when he died, there was a lot of stupid, sanctimonious talk about what a great job creator he was. And he wasn't. Um, I, I, uh, I cite in my book a study somebody did where they looked at the number of uh, American production workers, line workers, as opposed to, uh, you know, salespeople or um, engineers, you know, working class types who, who were involved in building the iPad in, I think the year was 2006, which was a really hot year for the, uh, for the iPod. Um, and uh, if I said, I think I might have said iPad, I meant iPod. Uh, and they found that the number of people who were working on production lines to create all of those iPods, the number of them who lived in the United States was like 30. I, say, I said in my book, you could have them all over to your house for dinner and feed them with a pot of chili. Uh, if you wanted to have all the, all the production workers from other countries, you were going to have to rent out a stadium. It's great that you've looked backwards. Can you talk about what you think is going to happen in the next 50 years relative to income inequality? I think my answer to that is no, I can't, because I don't know. When I wrote my book, I made a very deliberate decision. I, 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 I know people always, when you write books like this, they want, uh, especially economic books, they want you to say what's going to happen. And um, I have some very dear friends who have written books saying what's going to happen, and they've almost uniformly ended up looking like fools five or six years later. It's very hard to know what's going to happen. You know, this book, this book relies a lot on the work of economists who get kind of a bad rap. And uh, one thing I say in my book is that, is that it's a little unfair. People judge economists as, as predictors of the future, and they're not much better at that than, they, than anybody else. The real value of economists is as historians. Um, they are really good at telling us what has happened in the past and helping us understand uh, the history. And so this book is really, I, I cast this book really more as a history, looking at um, how we got here. Uh, and uh, I'm looking over the last hundred years, uh, first to look at uh, the, um, the uh, trend towards greater income equality from the 30s through the 70s, and, and then looking at the trend towards greater income inequality. Uh, you know, so I can't really tell you what'll happen in the future. Uh, I do cite the blinder thing about offshoring, um, so that's my one lapse. Um, but uh, I, I will say this, that I take uh, heart in the fact that we're having more discussion of income inequality uh, today than we have during the entire third of a century this, this trend has been going on. I don't know where it will lead. Um, uh, obviously, it's a great issue for Barack Obama to use against Mitt Romney, who is kind of a, a walking cartoon of the top 1%. <laughs> um, but um, uh, I, I don't know how far Obama will take it. I just wrote a column for the New Republic a couple of weeks ago expressing great disappointment that Obama hasn't uh, raised the minimum wage, something he promised he would do in 2008. Uh, if income inequality is a big theme in his campaign, and it is, why isn't he proposing uh, an increase in the minimum wage? It's actually, among other things, a great way to embarrass Romney, because Romney is in favor of uh, uh, increasing the minimum wage according to inflation. Um, he's, he's really angered a lot of conservatives with that, and he's, he's backed away from it a little bit when he got called on it by... Uh, Larry Kudlow of CNBC, he said, well, I'd want to index it to inflation and also to 12 other things so that I don't actually have to do it. But, uh, but still, at least in theory, he believes that, that the minimum wage uh, should uh, be raised according to economic circumstances. And it would be a great way to, uh, to needle Romney and to get 
conservatives to hate him a little bit more, and I don't know why he's not using it. It would also be, just be a really good idea to raise the minimum wage. If you look at companies like Facebook and LinkedIn, they're able to drive enormous valuations with very, very small numbers of employees, single-digit thousands in each case. Uh, and I'm wondering if there's any evidence for that being a driver in income inequality. You have these big companies that generate massive revenues for very few employees. I, I think that's, that's probably right. And I should say, I'm glad that one of, one, there's one person who I'm very glad got rich off of Facebook, and that's my boss, who just bought the New Republic uh, about six months ago. And uh, his uh, millions are a force for, for good in society. Uh, <laughs> But he's the only exception I'm going to make. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, in, in general, we've seen. Um, in general, we've seen. Uh, there's there's been a documented decline in uh, uh, how much of the GNP goes to uh, wages as against how much goes to um, uh, capital, and that's exactly what you would expect when the labor movement declines. You know, nobody's going to pay workers a nickel more than they have to, and they don't have to pay them very much when labor is, is flat on its back. In major cities like D.C. or St. Louis or Detroit, the, the unemployment rate for black youth in particular has been often in excess of 70%. And we also look at the, the imprisonment rates of black and brown uh, individuals, and we see uh, horrendous disparities which have a social psychological impact on that, those communities rather than an economic. So are these things factored into your assessment? There are alternative ways of measuring income inequality uh, that, that uh, figure in incarceration. Obviously, you don't make money when you're in jail. And um, uh, you, can, you can construe that income inequality uh, has, uh, between whites and blacks has increased. Uh, but even if that's true, the African-American uh, population is, is only about, what, 13% of the country. So it can't be driving these big... Uh, trends for the entire population. I, I, you know, I, I absolutely don't want to be, um, you know, uh, uh, anyone to think that I am indifferent to these issues having to do with race. Uh, African Americans have really taken it on the chin in this last recession. You know, my num my my calculations go back 33 years, which we just go back four or five years. Uh, these have been a terrible four or five years for. African Americans, that's that's for sure. Um, they they really got clobbered by the uh, subprime debacle. They lost a lot of wealth. Um, I would argue that a lot of that wealth never really existed in the first place. But nonetheless, they lost it, and they lost their homes, which I think is more important. Um, uh, but um, uh, you know, I think any way you calculate it. Uh, uh, race uh, is not contributing to the growth in income inequality. That's not to say that race doesn't contribute to income inequality, but my book is about the growth in income inequality. A couple of questions, I guess. So the first one is, uh, some years back, uh, employee stock ownership trust, ESOPs and the like, uh, pension plans, profit-sharing plans, these were the ways to get working people to accumulate wealth uh, there might be an income disparity, but it certainly was a way to, uh, or at least the, the notion was, that this would uh, diminish the gap in, in wealth. You didn't talk about that. I'm wondering about uh, how you look at that. And uh, not to be argumentative, but my understanding is when you put forth the idea that the minimum wage should be raised, uh, my understanding is that virtually nobody works at the minimum wage except the most people who do work at the minimum wage tends to be high school and college students, perhaps, and that when that wage goes up, there's a disincentive to hire essentially unskilled people. And right. I'd like you to respond to that. Most minimum wage workers are not teenagers. Most minimum wage workers are um, grown-ups, um, I think older than uh, 25. So uh, when you raise the minimum wage, you are mostly helping uh, adults. You're not mostly helping teenagers. The uh, other thing is that there's a kind of a ripple effect um, when you raise the minimum wage that tends to raise uh, 
wages uh, across the board. Now, there is uh, the, the, the ancient argument that when you uh, raise the minimum wage, you contribute to unemployment. But there's been a lot of research lately that says that, you know, while that should be true in theory, it's not true in practice, uh, or certainly not true to anything like the extent that people previously believed. And that's because, what do you know? When you raise people's wages, they tend to improve their productivity. Go figure, right? Um, and uh, so that actually contributes to economic growth, and it counteracts the, the unemployment effect. Uh, you know, this is, this is uh, uh, what a number of economists have said. I'm not an expert on this. I'm just kind of reporting on uh, what I found in, in, in talking to people. If you look at the statistics, I think it's about a third of Americans have college degrees, and the unemployment rate for people with a college degree is only about 4.2%, which is basically full employment. And the unemployment rate for people with less than a high school education is more than 15%. So isn't really the loss of all these jobs and this uh, income disparity, the fact that there's no manufacturing anymore, it's gone from something like 30% to only 8%. There are no jobs for these people. And unless we do something about that. In my book, what I'm trying to do is look at the question of how the United States is different. There are a lot of global trends that are affecting countries around the world. But uh, income inequality is growing faster in the United States. It's at a higher level in the United States. It's generally worse in the United States. And um, uh, so. Uh, what I'm trying to look at is what's uh, uniquely American about American income inequality. And um, uh, the, the, uh, the growth in income inequality uh, that uh, has happened as the manufacturing sector has uh, uh, withdrawn from much of the developed world, um, uh, the uh, growth in income inequality in the U.S. is, is disproportionate. Um, and partly that's because, you know, other developed countries have done a better job of hanging on to their manufacturing sectors, not by, uh, not by playing a, a game where you're racing to the bottom by trying to compete with lower wage countries, but by specializing in high tech manufacturing. And the, the, the shining example of that is, is Germany. Um, so, uh, yes, there's, there are a lot of global trends at work here. But my focus in my book is, is on asking the question, why, when global, global trends affect everybody, uh, why is it that it's worse in the United States? The main reason you found at the end, what was your conclusion? What is the reason? Well, I have a, there are a number of reasons, but I'll give you one example, and that's education. Um, you know, at the beginning of the uh, 20th century, when we started grabbing everybody and making them go to high school. Uh, the European nations thought we were idiots. They thought we were naive sentimentalists, wasting all of these resources on making everybody go to high school. Um, by the middle of the 20th century, they realized they'd screwed up, that we had been smart about this, and they had been stupid about this. And they started sending, providing more secondary education to um, uh, their teenagers, and uh, uh, by the end of the 20th century, they were beating us at our own game. Uh, their high school graduation rates uh, were exceeding ours, uh, college completion rates were exceeding ours in many cases. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one reason why it's worse here. Uh, labor has declined throughout the developed world, but it has declined much, much more in the United States than just about anywhere else. And um, I argue in my book that, that uh, much of that is attributable to government policy. Um, the government, uh, certainly since the 1980s, and uh, uh, even going back uh, to uh, 1947 when the Taft-Hartley law was passed, government policy has been hostile to um, labor. In my book, I describe this, it's just this heartbreaking story about um, this group of people who tried to... Um, uh, at Walmart, who tried to unionize in a little Walmart, and not a little Walmart, a big Walmart in Colorado, and um, uh, 
uh, when you kind of go through the story of how they lost, you realize they never had a chance. You know, there's only one Walmart that has ever unionized, ever, in the United States. It was one Walmart in Texas where the meat cutters, they had about six meat cutters, and they decided, hey, we want a union. And they voted for a union, and they actually, they actually got their union. And they had it for about a week. <laughs> Walmart said, you know what? We, we don't really want to cut meat anymore. We just want to sell packaged meat. Um, and uh, that was you know, perfectly legal. I haven't read your book yet, which I just bought tonight, but I've read about um, six or seven reviews of it so far, and if there's a common criticism, it's that your solutions are kind of idealistic but hopelessly um, unrealistic in terms of implementing. Things like reinvigorating the labor union movement and wage in, or uh, controls on college tuition, things like that. Do you have a rebuttal to those critics, or would you concede at least part of that and offer some alternative solutions that might achieve more of what you want in terms of flattening that inequality a little bit? Here's my response to that criticism. Uh, I, I, when I, you know, I had to write this solutions chapter to my book. I, when I, I, this book is based on a magazine series where I didn't have a solutions chapter. <laughs> my editor said, I'm sorry, you're going to have to have some solutions. And, you know, I, I have... I have at least seven or eight times in my life, written that review that says, this is a really good book, but then in the last chapter, it gets to the solutions, and that's not so good. Um, and I decided that uh, I really had two options. One was to talk about uh, solutions that were politically uh, likely, but that would achieve almost no improvement. And the other was to talk about solutions that are politically unlikely, but that would actually help solve the problem. And, and so my stance, and I think I even say this in the chapter, is, look, I know, you know most of these solutions don't have uh, much chance in the near future, but we have to at least start talking about these things. I think the best example is reviving labor. You know, I, my, my friend Joe Nocera wrote a column for the New York Times about how um, you know, liberals just don't want to hear that you have to revive the labor movement. They, they, they just you know, put their hands over their ears and say, you know, I don't want to hear about it because it's so hard and because the labor movement uh, was, was seriously discredited in the 70s and 80s when it engaged in um, certain destructive behaviors as globalization was, was picking up. Um, and, uh, uh, but you have to, there's absolutely no alternative to a labor movement in protecting the interests of, um, of, of workers at the median. Um, and you know, people are not going to pay workers any more than they have to. And so some way will have to be found to revive the labor movement. I think the sooner liberals uh, recognize that fact, the sooner we'll start uh, getting serious about solving the problem. Um, the, some of the solutions I propose actually do have a good chance of being enacted, maybe not this year, but certainly in the next 10 years. Um, it's now an article of faith among both liberals and conservatives that there should be um, universal preschool education. Um, that if you want to, uh, that the, you, you, the biggest, you get the biggest bang for your buck in uh, increasing um, education for uh, little kids. Everybody I know send, started sending their kids to school at the age of three. But um, most Americans don't start school at the age of three. And uh, all Americans should. And Obama campaigned on that in 2008. And um, I think that will happen. And I, 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 I think that will be uh, the equivalent of the high school movement in the early part of the 20th century, will be a preschool movement. Um, uh, another uh, proposal I have in my book, when I wrote it, I actually thought it was the single most radical thing I was suggesting. And that was that we should impose price controls on college tuition. Um, and um, you know, I thought this is a dagger pointed at the heart of the uh, of the liberal elite, who otherwise will love everything I'm saying in this book. Um, and so I included this crazy suggestion in my book. Sent the book off to the publisher. And while I'm waiting to get the galleys back, Barack Obama gives the State of the Union address, and uh, 
calls for price controls on college tuition. He didn't put it quite so bluntly, but he did say he was putting colleges and universities on notice that if they couldn't get uh, tuition increases under control, the United States government would use its leverage to make them get them under control. Now, has he done much about it yet? No. Um, but uh, what's interesting is that uh, you didn't see Republicans up in arms about it. They, they you know, Republicans will call him a socialist at the drop of a hat. Here he is basically proposing price controls, and Republicans didn't say anything. Um, my uh, hypothesis about why that is, is A, Republicans really hate colleges a lot. <laughs> and, and B, um, Republican members of uh, Congress send their kids to college too, and they can't believe how out of control college costs are themselves. So I actually think there's, there's some chance that uh, we will see some action there. The, the New York Times had a, um, had a, a series recently about uh, tuition costs spinning out of control, and they looked at Ohio State. And uh, the, uh, the president of Ohio State really has religion about controlling costs. But it turns out he's the highest paid university president <laughs> in the country. He makes about $2 million a year, I think. And, and, and he said, well, we might have to think about shutting down our, uh, our airport and our two golf courses. And I suddenly thought, well, maybe this is going to be a little easier than I thought it was. I've never understood why this country seems to be so harsh when it comes to the nature of student loans. I mean, there's no reason to think just because you've put yourself into great debt, getting an education, that you're going to be able to find a job, even, even especially a well-paying job, immediately, and the interest keeps accruing while you're looking for one. You can't even declare bankruptcy in order to try to get out of your loan. Any idea why we don't make it a little easier for uh, young people starting out with these loans? Fortunately, I think we've reached the point where we can't make it too much easier because um, the cost has gotten so astronomical that even if you start giving lots of breaks on the terms as, as uh, the government has been doing, um, uh, if, if the cost of the basic commodity is, is spinning out of control, you're still going to end up owing uh, unreal quantities of, of money. And um, I think we may actually be reaching, I think th that people are starting to realize that, and we may be reaching a kind of breaking point. Um, uh, where um, it, it's, it's, just, it's just the basic cost that has to be brought under control. I mean, I saw an article recently about the UC system, which I gather is broke, right? <laughs> and apparently, you know, you can't go to a UC without seeing, you know, buildings going up, even now, all over. And, um, and uh, university buildings are much more expensive to build than any other kind of building, this article said. Uh, the specs are are uh, are much more costly. Um, so uh, I actually think one thing Obama should say is that that we need to have a, a building moratorium, a voluntary building moratorium. You know, if there's something you absolutely have to build, go ahead. But I wish to empower students and faculty and local communities to raise holy hell at any building project that is not absolutely necessary, and maybe we should set up uh, some, uh, some uh, organizations that keep a watch on that.